Welcome, dear listeners, to another episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Walker, you should be a little closer to the microphone. Oh, sorry. That's fine. We'll fix it in post. My name's Michael Walker. I'm here with my good friend and editor, Mark Bigney. <laughs> How are you this week, Mark? I'm very well. It remains Fat Bear Week, Walker. Fat Bear Week. Fat Bear Week is definitely the event of the year. I, I don't even really know what Shark Week is. I think it's just a TV marketing thing, but Fat Bear Week is where it's at. You can vote on your favorite Chonkers Bear. My sponsored bear didn't didn't. Sadly, in day one, there was a bear named Walker that lost to a bear named Grazer. I think I know why. Because if you want to win Fat Bear Week, you shouldn't be walking, you should be grazing. It's true. It just makes sense. You got you to work for it. It's the formalism. <laughs> it's the, it absolutely is the case. And honestly, uh, it, once you see Walker and once you see Grazer, the bear forms, it makes sense why Grazer won. Grazer is an excellent fat bear. Anyway, if you're not familiar with Fat Bear Week, I encourage you to go check it out. It's great. We're going to talk about some board games, though. Oh, really? <laughs> We're going to talk about the games we played last week and the news and why it didn't matter. And then our main review of the week, which is going to be City of the Great Machine. Mark, where did you get to play this week? I got to play Undaunted Stalingrad. I'm sorry, Walker. You've been fired. Apparently. Yeah. Well, I saved all the information from our uh, relatively brief excursion into the Stalingrad campaign. So it can be reconstructed on a moment's notice. And I was able to start anew. And I was reminded of all the things that Undaunted is... All the reasons why Undaunted is a continuous joy. How simple it is. Even some of the niggling rules difficulties that in another system would be very, very difficult to navigate are very, very easy to implement. And just the level of character and narrative that is delivered through a lot of the scenarios. I was also reminded of my one chief criticism of the Undaunted series. And this was very much on display in one of the games of Stalingrad that we played. And that is that there are a relatively small number of dice thrown. And many of the dice rolls are a very, very high impact. And that is not a good balance to have. So in other words, the likelihood of there being particularly aberrant luck is higher in a game of Undaunted than there, than it would be in you know, a longer game or even a game of a similar length where you throw more dice. We'll actually be talking about one of those later. And as a consequence in this particular instance, uh, one of the scenarios was so skewed in my favor, I felt very bad. Just the level of pain and angst that I felt over the lack of success of the person that I was playing Undaunted against uh, definitely put a little bit of a damper on the experience. Now, all that having been said, Undaunted, even bad Undaunted is great Undaunted, and this wasn't even bad Undaunted. We've had Battle Lore games like that, though. It's true. Uh, well, especially Battle Lore 2nd Edition, because yeah. Battle Lore 2nd Edition, again, has a smaller density of dice rolls and a smaller number of dice in those rolls. It's one of the reasons why I prefer games like Commands and Colors Napoleonics. But yes, even, all Commands and Colors games tend to be rather dice determinative. And we... Uh, honestly, uh, just going through the campaign again, the early stages of it, it's very, very, very well done. I do like how things develop, how you get to have little bits of personality, even by your second card play, very, very easily administered. There's no paperwork per se. You do track some things on paper, but it's all contained in your deck. Your sniper took a wound. That's fine. It's represented in your deck. Your machine gunner learned how to do machine gunning better. That's in your deck. And so, despite my misgivings about campaigns, I was more than happy to tear down the previous one and start another one of Undaunted Stalingrad. And, like all the other games, remains a continuous joy in terms of its simplicity and yet quality of decision-making intention. And it remains the best initiative system in any game on the market. So this was Undaunted Stalingrad, designed by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson, published by Osprey Games last year. Because every year needs a new Undaunted game because Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson are unrelenting. <laughs> Did you say every year or every six months? <laughs> exactly. So speaking of dice luck, Mark, I guess you decided to use up all of your don't llama dice luck up today. <laughs> there was some ridiculousness going on in our normal silliness of don't llama dice. This is by Reiner Knizia, put out by Amigo, and it's just a bunch of silly fun. You get dealt six cards and you're rolling dice. We actually, this is the first time we've ever played Don't Llama Dice. By the correct rules. By the correct rules. Yes. We're not, we're playing, we're playing the baby, baby poo face version now. I don't think that's true. 
I think that when it comes to... Okay, look. So let, let's talk explicitly about what we were talking about. By virtue of the fact that we'd been playing on your German copy of Don't Lob a Dice, and there is no English printout in the box, which is reasonable. You don't have a printer. We'd gotten the scoring rules wrong, and this was actually pointed out to us by members of the guild. If you end a round with, say, two sixes, you don't get 12 points. You get six. You only score any given number once. Walker does not approve of this change. He regards it as... <laughs> I don't approve. I just, you know, I like the, the harshness of how we were playing before. Well, <laughs> it change, It suddenly changes your decisions about what to take and when. True. And so I am I, willing to defer to Reiner Knizzi about things on math. I'm not going to say that he never makes mistakes, but when it comes to the math of dice games, I'm certainly willing to bet that he knows better than we do. Maybe. <laughs> Wow. All right. So you get six six <laughs> cards, one through six and some llamas, and you roll dice that have same said numbers, one through six and some llamas. There are some combinations that are impossible to get because the dice are not the same. And when you roll uh, what you have in cards, you're allowed to discard them if you want. But sometimes you want to keep a safety llama because if you roll the dice and there are none of your cards there, then you can use some safety cards that are in the middle. But if there are none of those left, then you have busted and you are in trouble. And Llama is heavily disproportionately represented on the dice. It's true. And it's one of those games where someone's going to get to 40 points and they lose and whoever has the least points will win. Don't Llama Dice... It has all the virtues of a quality press-your-luck decision-making mechanism, as well as maximal spectator enjoyment, you know. I would happily watch people play a game of Don't Llama Dice. You know, it's one of those things where at a public game day or at a games night or something, and you see a table of people playing Don't Llama Dice, and it's already five minutes in. I would happily stick around just to watch, just to see people agonize and glory and triumph over their triple llama roll and suffer madly as they bust with a 665 and... It's it's got all that plus, as I say, the the solid uh, uh, push your luck element of a Reiner Knizzi because every throw is not like the other. the The odds are constantly changing by virtue of what's in front of you, what's available on the table, as well as where other people are in terms of their proximity to going out. Because the length of a given round is uncertain, and you don't want to be at the wrong stage of your development when the round ends. Don't Love a Dice is a marvelous filler. 15, 20 minutes tops. Lots of fun. Absurd theming. <laughs> so let's keep on the topic of push your luck games. Yeah, this is the obvious segue. Yeah, yeah obvious, I approve. Right? Because we also got to play Can't Stop with the new magnetic box, Mark. This, honestly, I was not prepared for how cool the box is. So this is the new edition by the Korean publisher Plata. And the box consists of a folding magnetic board that you completely deploy, and that gives you a V, a consummate V walker. And at the bottom of the V, what you do is you take out a folding little thing in the box that then magnetically attaches to the bottom of the board. So the edges of these two boards connect via magnets. It's adorable, functional, and really cool. Did I mention magnets? Now, the only things that are not magnets are pieces, which is unfortunate. But still, yeah, you're, you were a bit disappointed by that. Yeah, but still, the box is it's very nice cool. wood. And I, I like, I like when you said that the folding piece connects. But not only does that, it helps hold the board down. It's true. So not only does it like fit together, but it keeps it all nice and flat to the table. And it's a really, really small box. Keep in mind the version of Can't Stop to which I was first introduced was one of the original Milton Bradley huge red stop sign plastic versions, which are bigger bigger box than most contemporary Euro games now. And because when I, I started gaming in Cambridge, Can't Stop was the uh, intro slash filler of choice for reasons, quite frankly, passing understanding to me. But this new edition is marvelous. So what you're doing in Can't Stop is you are rolling four dice, and then you can link up any combinations of those four dice that you like, and you start moving up these tracks that are numbered 2 to 12. But you can only move up three of them per turn. And as soon as you've sort of maneuvered your way into the three that you're moving up for this turn, if you roll a combination of the dice that doesn't represent one of those three, then you've busted and you're allowed to stop at any time and mark your progress on those tracks. And so you're slowly moving up these different tracks and whoever fill, gets to the top of three tracks first wins. 
So what do you think of Can't Stop Walker? We acquired this copy on your say-so, partially by virtue of your enthusiasm for its implementation on Board Game Arena, and I think partially by virtue of, you know, magnets. 90% magnets. (laughs) 10% the fact that I think I've played maybe a hundred games on this is the first time i've ever played it with a physical copy. oh really this is it's i've always played it on board game arena it's very fast yes and just for that reason i i don't they use the tutorial for board game arena by by leading you through a game of can't stop that i'm not sure i seem to recall that i was made to play a game of can't stop when signing up for board game it, arena it could could very well be because they, they give you all the choices of the dice. You just click on what you want. You zip through a game very quickly. It's one of the games, like, if people are trying to get to, like, alpha game status where you can, you know, play right. test some of the new games. Can't Stop is definitely one of the ones they play. It's a great push-your-luck type game. But when compared to Llama Dice, it maybe you might think it uh, Can't Stop maybe goes on for a bit too long. I, I can't help but agree. So Can't Stop is a venerable classic by Sid Saxon. It's been around for decades. And it's been very, very popular. It's been published by 21 different companies. Mass market, hobbyists, publishers, you name it. It's popular amongst hobbyist gamers. It's it's, it's had a bit of a, of a renaissance. Like a couple of years ago, uh, a number of people like Michael Barnes were talking about how, you know, Can't Stop is better than 90% of the things being, well, 99% of the things being published today. And so it goes through these cycles of being rediscovered by segments of the hobbyist market. I've never really liked Can't Stop. I respect Sid Saxon, the designer, endlessly. I think that Acquire is a fascinating design. I think that Can't Stop is a very clever design. I don't like playing them. I think that they show their age, and I think that there are better iterations that get to the same thing. So, uh, many of them by Reiner Knizia. Now, the, the key problem I have with Can't Stop are twofold. Number one is that I really prefer it when a role in a, uh, a push-your-luck game differs from a, the previous role. When you're playing Can't Stop, once you've got your three markers out on the board, your odds of busting never change. It's always invariant. It's just a question of, well, I'm constantly taking the same risk. It doesn't evolve. There's no texture and nuance, and there's no player interaction. So yeah, you get some of the schadenfreude of like needling your opponent to roll again, and then when they bust, you get to laugh and take the dice. But that, I mean, leads more directly to my second problem, which is, yeah, it's too long. It, it, it's a lot of it in person is about just the repeated arithmetical procedure of determining what the combinatorial possibilities are on the four dice you roll. I'm not surprised that it thrives on Board Game Arena because it can just tell you exactly what goes on because sometimes there's only one possible application of the dice or zero, and it takes a few seconds every time for you to count up the pips. And I'm, it may sound absurd to somebody say, you just... you." Three and five make eight. That's That ain't no thing. It's barely anything, but it's not nothing. And when that's all you're doing, roll after roll after roll, the delays add up and it's not engaging. And so again, it, it feels like I'm just doing counting for the sake of counting. So Can't Stop has never really done it for me. As I say, it was very popular in Cambridge when I first started up in the hobby. They even had an obnoxious variant that I they... Don't think when you told me about it, I don't think it's obnoxious at all. I think we should... Oh, my goodness. I, I like oh, my it. goodness. No, I'm getting flashbacks, please. I thought I'd gotten away. The variant is Can't Stop on Top, whereby you are not allowed to go out voluntarily if your marker is currently on top of somebody else's marker. Now, what this does is it takes a game with precious few choices and removes more of the options. I I think that adds more options, because if you're behind someone, you decide, do I want to roll? Because if I roll and hit, now I'm going to be on top, I'm going to be forced to roll. Or do I stop now and mark my spot and then try to, you know, push ahead on my next turn? Can't stop on top is bad. Okay. I'll take your word for it. I have not played it. Okay. That's Can't Stop, designed by Sid Saxon and put out by everyone. (laughs) We get to play Hybris Disordered Cosmos. This oh, was desi- that, that name. That's what's I mean, tingly on the tongue. It's something, all right. By Damien Chauveau, who is also one of the artists, for what it's worth. Published by Aurora Game Studio after successful crowdfunding. And Hybris Disordered Cosmos is very much in the sort of more is more theory applied to worker placement. Now, there are a couple of games like this that are uh, swag favorites. One of them is Anachrony. A lot of people like Anachrony around here. Uh, another one, which is a little more niche, is Argent the Consortium. I've finally come to terms with Argent the Consortium. And there are ways to do this that are, you know, maintain the, si- the same core elements of worker placement, but lord on a bunch of additional stuff. Now, stuff for stuff's sake is not something we like. 
but you can nonetheless get to a rather sprawling experience, preferably heavily thematic while doing that. And that's very much the side of the sort of thing that Hybris is going for. I adore 95% of what Hybris does. And the remaining 5% that I completely loathe and utterly alienates me ruins the entire thing. Consequently, Hybris has been one of the most frustrating experiences of the past few months in terms of new games trying, because I feel like it's real close to something I would really like. Now, even then, in that context, it would be highly idiosyncratic because a lot of my appreciation comes from the theme. This is the more or less the same theme as Lords of Hellas, which is to say sci-fi, vaguely cyberpunky kind of Greek myths. But the idea here is that it's just after the Titanomachy, Kronos and the Titans have just been defeated, but the Olympians are not yet gods. They're trying to become gods. They're trying to assert their dominance in this new era of chaos. The old gods are dead. The new gods have yet to rise. And so you're competing amongst the other Olympians to become a god. And there are lots of cool upgrades. Like you work to unlock Odysseus by all these cool things. And then you get a new special ability. Oh, I'm so frustrated. <laughs> I, I did not feel like any of this was going on when I was playing this game. Sure, that uh, yeah, that's fair. It was, it was so weird. It had this very <laughs> oh, it was weird. It was definitely it had, weird. It had this very disconnected because we're going to be talking about this at the end. Very disconnected, sort of hidden worker placement. You know, you're going to put down a token. You're going to commit at the top of the and, round to where you're going to go, and it's really going to matter. And it and it usually doesn't. And then it has this other weird. I, I'm going to correlate it to daddy, daddy, are we there yet? Or daddy, daddy, I want a bike. And and, and so, the, so the villagers say, oh, great God, can you give us a bike? And you're like, okay, okay, wait, wait, wait. I, I, I can get you a bike. I, I just got to drop the blueprints. And then, so you take a turn drawing up the blueprints. And then and then other people might draw blueprints, right? So your blueprints sort of shuffle along. And he's like, daddy, is, is my bike right? No, okay, just, it's not ready yet. I got to send your bike to the factory. So off goes the bike to the factory. And and then you take some actions to move it along the factory. Maybe some other people will take actions and it'll move along the factory later. And then, oh, finally, finally, they can, can we ride? No, you can't ride the bike yet. <laughs> I got I to gotta go pick up the bike. <laughs> so then it's yet another action to uh, bring the bike home. And now, 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 hold on, hold on. Once you bring the bike home... I would argue, and I, I, I believe this and we might disagree, I would argue that once taking the bike home, if you then got to ride the bike, I wouldn't mind because it's a really great bike. Yeah. We're we're talking about like Pee-wee's Big Adventure bike quality here. No, really. It's yeah, how you no, win. I'm you, agreeing with you. you. Oh, but, you but, agree. Mark, but Mark, you don't... You I don't, don't get to ride the bike once you bring it home? You don't but you did all those bike. things, Walker. No, what, no. what happens when you try to bring the bike home? Billy kicks you to the ground and Billy gets to ride the bike. Why does Billy get to ride the bike? Well, because he just happened to have a worker free. <laughs> that doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> no, yeah. it doesn't. Walker is referring to one of the elements of the 5% that drive me nuts. Because like many sort of, you should have had a better developer on hand, the PvP is all over the map. Specifically, so Walker's talking about the technologies. You as a god, as an Olympian, well, as a, as a wannabe god, can bring these various sci-fi technologies to the various cities of Athens. And... Part partially, there are too many texts. That part, that part is just too many details. But I think it, with multiple plays, you'd you'd start to get a better handle on the texts available for you, and at least they're not randomized, so you don't have to worry about the good ones being buried or something. Yeah, it's very much like Orleans, right? Where you good, you, good, good analogy. You yeah. look through like you know the multitude of different things you can build, and then yeah, the, and the, the player aid at least is exhaustive and, and covers all of them. And there are a number of steps to bring a technology to fruition. All of that is balanced by the fact that once a technology is successfully deployed into the Greek Isles, you are showered in points and bennies. It's by far the most lucrative thing you can do. And that part's fine. Again, we said it's an in-depth, involved worker placement game that might take a while. It's okay that it takes a few steps to shepherd things into fruition. And again, it leads to the, f the scoring feeling semi-focused. But then Billy comes by, because once you deploy the technology... Oh my god, this is so silly. Once you deploy the technology in reverse player order, anybody with an available worker can show up and try to punch you in the face real hard to just steal one of the bennies. And one of the bennies will be a function of one of the tracks that you've saved up, and then your track gets blanked out. It would be one... Th that little detail, I don't think it would make the game significantly better... But that little detail in Hybris really chafes me, right? The fact that it's your virtue track that they get to steal, and then your virtue track, if it were their virtue track, just to show up and say, no, 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 I'm going to come take the credit, so I get to cash in my... No, no, they cash in your track. 
Oh my goodness. Right. I I I I stole six points of Huey's. Yes. Just because he accidentally now I I you and I disagree on the pre-planning aspect. You don't think it adds anything? I think it's fine. I don't I I, I don't think it doesn't say it adds nothing. It just feels arbitrary most of the time. Well, in this case it definitely was arbitrary because Huey accidentally sent a prophet to go deliver the technology to the people of Athens, I believe it was. And prophets don't fight. There are other workers that do. Again, variation in worker types. I like that often in your more elaborate worker placement games. The two examples that I gave thrive on that. So that part of Hybris is no problem. But the pro- if you have them then deliver deliver technologies, and then I'm like, well, I've, I've got these workers that do fight available. So all I have to do is just raise my hand and I steal five of Huey's points. Well, I guess I'm going to raise my hand and steal the five. I didn't feel good about it. It was didn't feel great. And the, the combat mechanism is 100% A and B fight C wins. Flat. Oh, flat. Because because combat cards are, I'm not saying impossible to come by. but Well, they're, they're difficult to come by, yeah. And you have to use like whole actions and, and placements to get them, like one or two, and then you're using them to... Yes. And the loser gets nothing. Yes. And they get to lose all their combat cards. The winner takes everything. And so there's this bizarre situation where... And again, a, a variety of circumstances into which the attacks take place are, are really weird. The incentive structure is all over the place. If I send a worker somewhere, I go and I do the thing. And then somebody comes to try to kick me out of that space, possibly because they were forced to go there because they pre-planned it that way and didn't know I was going to go there first, possibly because they're just being a thug and they have a reason to, to win a fight another reason. I've already done my thing. I've activated the worker placement spot in Hybris. I've done the thing. I technically don't really have any interest in winning the fight. If I decide to get difficult, either because I haven't understood the incentive structures possibly, or because I feel like I have to uh, have to constrain the leader, or because secretly I have some mission that nobody else knows to win a fight, well, suddenly we're in some weird pissing contest where neither of us really win. I hate combat systems like that. Hate, hate, hate. I'm using the word hate right now to talk about the combat system for Hybris. Now, sometimes you go fight monsters. That's fine. Ain't got no problem with that. Again, very much like Lords of Hellas, if you have this sub-mechanism that is only used for PvE and to go hunt monsters, fine. Ain't no thing. I don't mind. And there's a co-op module for Hybris, right, that gets rid of the PvP. It automates some kind of opponent that you then all cooperate against. I... I've got half a mind to give it a try because I'm so curious. And Huey was interested in giving it a shot. Maybe the two of us will give it a try sometime. I I, I would gladly play it again. But still, there's so much handcuffing there because you have to pay for every time you place a normal worker, except for your god, you have to pay a resource. And it's, it's also, at the end of every round, there's a ridiculous card that beats you all down. It's like, oh, see all those Every other round. Every other round, all those gains that you made, well... You know, whatever. They're you can protect there. yourself against half of it. Half of it. But yeah. still, just, it's just building up for the sake of being beat down. All those things I don't mind about the economy, frankly. The one part of the economy in Hybris that I detest, though, is that I, you know, I talked about unlocking these bennies. And it's really cool. When you get a benefit, what you do is you remove something blocking one of your benefits on your player board. But it can only be the leftmost thing on a given upgrade. So you have to time things with a kind of consideration. You don't want to be in a position where you can unlock a spark, but you don't have any sparks that are yet to take out. Same thing with unlocking heroes and and, and profits. All that part is really cool. And when I read about that in the rulebook, I was very excited. The problem is, with respect to two of those core resources, namely temples and heroes, or profits sometimes, the only way you get to do that is by taking a certain... Action card Benny. These action cards at the top of the round that you draft and they give you a Benny and they give everyone else a Benny. That's fine. But they built in like core economic progress into these cards and gate locked up between those cards exclusively. It's yeah, ver- for those it's very much like uh, Twilight Imperium 4, where you have six different uh yes. sort of things you can choose from at the beginning of the round, and everyone picks those, and then the main person does the top of the action and everyone else gets to do the bottom of the action. But the bottom of but but here it's only the top of the action that gets to do anything. That's it would right. be it would be like and I are, am I defending Twilight Imperium now? I think so. Is this what Hybris it's, Disordered it's, Cosmos is made to happen. do? It's about to happen. What's the episode number? I gotta make sure I write this down. <laughs> In Twilight Imperium 4, if somebody takes the technology action, people can follow. It's expensive, but they can do it. And so you know, it's like, all right, 
I'm either not going to take it or someone else is probably going to take it from me. I can try to set things up so that you can follow if need be, right? Because technology is super important in Twilight Imperium 4. Similarly, getting your temples out is super important in Hybris Disordered Cosmos. There's only one way to do it reliably. And it's not like there are a whole bunch of opportunities that arise organically for you to do it another way. No, no, no. It's pretty much just that. That part really frustrated me. So with a slightly different economy... Before you would go off... Yeah, yeah. Because they tied in with the placement of your god on top of that. So in Twilight Imperium, you can sort of gauge those interesting actions uh, in the round. Like that technology one, you said, I could take that and realize people need to quickly, you know, like uh, do stuff to get that. So I'm just going to do that immediately. So no one's going to have a chance to build up the resources they need. Sure. In this, it's tied to your god. So if you need to place your god, well, then guess what? You're using your card as well because that's when you have to do it. Eh. I'm just saying. I think it's 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 more grist for timing elements. When you use your god, how because it is in your advantage to keep your god in reserve for a variety of reasons. Again, the aforementioned big leaguing, which I don't like. Uh, the ability to because the god can go wherever it wants. I mean, prophets and heroes they have to take a boat to get somewhere. Gods just show up, bamf. So that part was fine. Look, if Hybr- if Hybris had a different combat system, preferably no PvP or a PvP system where the loser gets something or uh, a, a combat card system where you cycle through combat cards rather than spending them like very, very dear resources. Some combination of those maybe. And if the core upgrade systems weren't so incredibly arbitrarily tied to just these once around weird things, I think you'd have a real winner. I mean, it would be a solid contention for something that I really like and really caters to my preferences in the genre of, you know, complicated uh, elaborated, overly complicated. I don't know about overly complicated. (laughs) Elaborated, medium heavy to heavyweight worker placement games that last maybe about three hours ish as it is. Swing and a miss. I mean, I knew this was likely independent, small time, first time uh, game publishers biting off more than they can chew. As I was reading the rulebook, I'm like, wow, this looks really promising. And then I get to the combat. I'm like, Oh no, this is where it's going to fall apart. Isn't it? (laughs) I was right. Anyway, Hybris Disordered Cosmos. We might try the co-op version at some point. Damien Chevreau, Aurora Game Studio, 2023. So frustrating. So playing more Praga Kaput Rigni online, because it's no longer just on Yakata. It's also on another platform that will go unnamed. Praga <laughs> is designed by Vladimir Succi and put out by Delicious Games. It is very interesting in person because it has like very like moving gears and wheels and stuff. So, but very interesting. It does a reasonably good job of managing the round structure by virtue of cubes falling. It into does, a hole. but all of the actions slide along with it. I like it. Okay, so you take tiles and they have two actions. You choose one it's of no them. No magnets. It's, it is true. It is <laughs> no magnets. And you're building cathedrals, and you're moving up, and you're putting out castles. You have a sideboard with all the actions. You can upgrade those actions. Lots going on. And it has a fascination with eggs that would make John Waters blush. It is true. So it's now also on Board Game Arena. If you want to give it a try, it is there. Still haven't tried Messina 1347. I'm playing that as well at the moment too i'm i'm suiting it up mark yes but oh. you said you were going to show me messina 1347 oh. well we'll have to just get it with the real game because i i definitely want to play it in real life as opposed to digitally sure walker we have a uh infrequent award ineligible segment here on so very wrong about games called swag presents masterpiece theater it is in honor of our patron our dear esteemed patron who does not know we exist and would probably ask us to stop if he did his grace the Right Honorable Vincent, Duke of Diesel, Esquire, OBE, PhD, PhD. And it was spawned, actually, by errant comments made when we first played the Prospero Hall Fast and Furious Highway Heist co-op game. Well, I played Fast and Furious Highway Heist again. I introduced it to the Louis, and great fun was had by all. The moment I started explaining how you could get on top of your little car and leap onto the back of a semi in order to offload. And this is this is the thing that, that, that's important to remember. They don't emphasize this in the game scenario. There are three scenarios, all of which are ridiculous. But the thing is, you have these souped up cars and you're jumping all over the place in order to steal, do you, know, do you remember what it is? Oh yeah. DVD players. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when we started this escapade and I, yes. and I, and I plopped in number one. Yes. And the, the big, the big <laughs> hall, the big... 
takedown. Yep. We got those DVD players. Yeah. Ooh, we're going to make. And this was particularly absurd about halfway through the scenario after a couple of our cars had been totaled. And here we were still attempting to steal boxes. Now, they they call it cargo in the scenario, but people who've seen the film know what it is. (laughs) Anyhow. So, as I say, Fast and Furious Highway Heist is, uh, I think, a very, very good example of Prospero Hall at their best. The components are most excellent. The semi-truck the big plastic semi-truck that you get to play with has a door that opens and closes to represent when the cargo door is opened and closed. Little little touches like that, I think, really sell the experience. Now, the key uh, criticism I have of Fast and Furious Highway Heist is that it is very, very luck-dependent. Basically, all you're doing is you're making these checks over and over. You're just pitching dice, and there's not really a good way to, to modify the results very well. You can use these nitrous canisters to juice your successes, as it were, but they are very hard to come by, and it always feels like a waste to spend a full action rejuvenating them. So in effect, what you end up doing is you end up kind of trapped in a cycle of wasting all these actions with failed checks because you can't be bothered to waste half your turn getting them back. It's a whole thing. Anyway, that having been said, it's not overlong, it doesn't wear out its welcome, and the three scenarios are at least visually differentiated. And you get to play as the coolest man in all of cinema, Han. Han the first time, not when he came back. Spoiler alert. Not, not, not reincarnated. Yeah, yeah. Long-haired zombie. Han. Lo- yeah, zombie, zombie Han. Zombie. Yeah, exactly. Long-haired Han that, that constantly snacked and, and uh, uh, hit on Gal Gadot. That's, that's, that's the Han we're talking about. Han in a muscle car, that's what I'm there for. Anyway, Fast and Furious Highway Heist, I think it's one of the better games by Prospero Hall. I really like their Funkoverse uh, strategy game, which is really just a skirmish game. And I also really like Top Gun with all its absurdity with the uh, volleyball leading to dogfighting. And it's it's some cute stuff. There's stuff there for hobbyists. There's stuff there for non-hobbyists. And it's an enjoyable co-op game. What can I say? It's not the deepest thing in the world. I wouldn't want to play it all the time, as evidenced by the fact that there's been several years between uh, playings of Fast and Furious Highway Heist. But I saw it on my shelf. I needed something for the Louis, and I thought, this'll do. And sure enough, everyone everyone very much enjoyed it. Fast and Furious Highway Heist by Prospero Hall, published by Funko Games in 2021. It's a game about family. So true. Lastly, for me... I kickstarted a game called Trolls and Princesses because it looked amazing. There was stealing babies. There was <laughs> trolls that, that hate bells. Okay, it was can very I just, colorful. Can I just ask a question? On the scale of Walker enthusiasm, does stealing babies rank above or below magnets? No comment. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and when I read the rules, it promised lots of things. And when I played it, it delivered on all of those things, Mark. It is a worker placement where uh, there's no end of round. So once you get all your workers out, you're just shuffling them from place to place and generating action points. And some of these action points, you, there's some spots on your board and there's some spots on the main map. And a lot of the actions on the main map, you can also use other players' trolls to generate points. So it's very interesting that way. You wanna, you're want you deciding whether or not to build up areas because you don't want to give uh, points to other players. There's a certain number of action. There's one action in the village that will remove all of your trolls from that spot. So you want to be able to trigger that every so often so people aren't generating points off of you. There is a, the major scoring is having sort of a set. So you want to have a bell, a baby, and an outpost of neutral, right? Because all the neutral, all the neutral stuff's out on the board. And so you are removing the bells, you are switching human babies with troll babies, (laughs) and you are switching uh, human outposts with, with your troll outpost. But you can't just, you can't just switch them, Mark. Okay. You have to have room in your player area to put them. So that's the other part I enjoy about the game is just not doing it and then storing it in some area. You have to sort of generate areas. You're building out your troll network with tiles. Some of them have spots for bells. Some of them have spots for other things. There are cards that you can get that also have spots for things. So you have to get your timing right. You have to make sure the spot is available. Lots of good stuff coming on. You can kidnap humans. They sort of act like trolls. They'll sit in spots and get <laughs> You can kidnap humans. They act like trolls. Well, they—I mean, they—they—they like they, <laughs> they, they, you—you—you uh, put them to work. You throw them in the in the cave, and they and they will generate you action points for that particular. Action. Don't a number of countries have large quantities of trolls that they put to work for various state in- ends? <laughs> With their cont- I think I remember reading about counterintelligence about this a few years ago. It's like how it, it does cover 
you know, the gist of actual like mythology of trolls. There's a great show. I think it was called Helga. It was a, uh, I think it was a Nickelodeon uh, cartoon that came out recently that also stacks, uh, kept fairly close to the lore of trolls. So I really enjoyed it. I'm very much looking forward to hopefully showing it to you soon. Well, I remember how delightful the components were. And given that I didn't pledge for it and I didn't really read much about it and we go through so many crowdfunding campaigns in a given week, the fact that I still remember the look of, of the design. This is by Game Brewer, the same people who did uh, Oak. I'm lots, getting... of, lots of things we love. We love uh, Gugong and Oak and yeah. the... Well, I'm, I'm getting strong oak vibes from the overall aesthetic, right? From the strong green, the mythological influence, the the uh, same box size. I mean, I'm probably just making connections that don't exist. You don't actually get to play dress up with your princesses with little plastic accessories. Oh, yeah, I didn't even mention the princesses. You get to you, you create these lavish uh, troll caves for your princesses that you kidnap. <laughs> but do you get to play dress up with your little princess meeples with no, plastic? Okay, no. that that I think would be great. But <laughs> it has another great sort of mechanic where you have these sort of king troll king actions. At the beginning of your at the beginning of your turn, you're going to play a card, and it'll tell you which part of which village gets populated with something. If anything, it also tells you where the troll king is going to go in your area. It's going to either be in a village space or somewhere on your board, and he also generates like a free action point for you. But that being said, there is a king tile. You start with one printed on your board, and it always just costs one action and they're usually very powerful. You can only do it once per, per placement, but it's, it's interesting that you can build up more. Like you get a King's tile every time you kidnap a princess and there are some goal cards. <laughs> it still sounds ridiculous every time you say it. It's great. I don't... <laughs> so that's Trolls and Princesses. It's designed by Pim Thunborg and put out by, like we said, Game Brewer. Finally, for me, I went to Scenario 3 of Battle Card Series 1. Battle Card is a series of minimalistic solo wargame scenarios that are print-and-play, and it really is print-and-play, no assembly required. You print out a sheet of paper, and all you need are the dice, and then you you that's all literally all you need. Designed by Nils Johansson and David Thompson recently after successful crowdfunding. For about five bucks, you're going to get a total of five scenarios. And last uh, last time I talked about Battle Card Series 1, I talked about the first two scenarios, the Malayan Campaign and Moro River. And I didn't much enjoy the Malayan Campaign, but I very much enjoyed Moro River. And so thus, I was curious to see where the third scenario, Mortain, would fall on this spectrum. Now, curiously enough, I, I will give credit where credit is due. This is the first Wargame series that I've seen in a long, long time where it took Scenario 3 for the Americans to show up. So in many ways, it's evocative of history. Zing! Anyway, the first uh, the first scenario of the Malayan campaign was the British against the Japanese army. Moro River was the Canadians against the Germans, and Martin is the Americans against the Germans in 1944. I'd have to say it fits squarely between Malayan campaign and Moro River. I don't think it's as interesting as Moro River. And when I initially read the scenario structure, I was like, where, where, where are the... the the, the choices. But the choices come in largely in terms of how you use your artillery. Essentially, there are a series of locations. You decide whether you're going to defend or counterattack. They have slightly different risks for each, depending on the relative strength of the forces involved at each location. And then, if you have someone left alive on Hill 314, please have someone alive on Hill 314, you get to decide where to allocate your artillery losses. And that's the big decision. And of course, by virtue of that, your big decision is, how do I keep the forces on Hill 314 alive as long as possible? And so that gave you more choices than the Malayan campaign, but I don't think quite as much texture as was available in Moro River, because in Moro River you had a lot more decisions about when to attack, when to pull back, when to go, when to pursue. And ultimately, uh, Martin was therefore uh, diverting, but not as engaging as the other one. So in other words, it, it was a worthy way to pass the time, and certainly, given how low impact both the rules are and the components, I certainly don't regret my time with Martin, and I'm a backer for Battle Card for what it's worth. So even though Martin and Malayan Campaign and Moro River were sent to us uh, by the designer as review copies, I've paid for it already, and I'll be getting getting the official versions when everyone else does. So I've I've enjoyed my time all told with the series. Again, Malayan Campaign wasn't the best way to start it off, but I think the other two scenarios are varying shades of worthy. And it, I certainly can't complain about the price or barrier to entry. So that's Battle Card Series 1 by Nils Johansson and David Thompson, Postmark Games. It's available for a late pledge now if you're inclined to go find it on Kickstarter. 
Those are the games we played this week. But first, a quick break to pay the bills. And now we're back with the news. Mark, do you feel the wave coming? The wave? Giant wave. Like like in a baseball game? Essen is ended. Ah, uh, yes. End of the year is fast approaching. It's true. The glut is going to be oozing towards us soon. Yes, so- after weeks and weeks and weeks of ending every pledge of indifference with, I have no shipping notifications and I've received nothing, I now have four shipping notifications. Here they come. So, that being said, we've already talked about most of them. I don't have very much here, except for the first thing here is the Studying Emerald. It has, uh, yes, it has the third edition. Third edition. Of Studying Emerald. It's had two already, so Simons decided that they can do the the penultimate final version. No, that would be the ultimate version. The, the, ultimate, pen, the penultimate is the second to last version. The, the ultimate version of Studying Emerald. Maybe this one I'll actually enjoy. That's just should say because I, I only played the second edition. Maybe the first one was fine as well. No, uh, I've uh, personally I've found both of them sort of mirror studies in, on in lack of success. The first one was cumbersome, creaky, and very, very, very fragile. The second one was blanched of all the interesting stuff that made the first one at least show promise. Uh, and th- therefore was incredibly dull, and uh, I don't think anyone really prefers the second edition, really, because at least the first, the first one, the first edition, there was a spark of something. Second edition was just dull, 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 dull. I am not optimistic that Simon would be able to do anything with 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 this kind of structure, but who knows? We've been wrong before. And lastly, for me, uh, Star Trek Into the Unknown, Mark. I think they already had like a sort of X-Wing game. I think it was called Attack Wing or something that yes. already had Star Trek. So this is going to be a new one though. Oh. So, but there's going to be all sorts of like campaign-y sort of ah. not all space combat, some other stuff. Oh. So which Star Trek property is it themed around? It is themed around uh, uh, Next Generation. Oh, okay. It's going to be That's like. That's weird. It's going to be uh, exploring the Alpha Quadrant. Oh, all right. So we have Chip the Third is a big Star Trek fan. I'm kind of a big Star Trek. I'm a, good, a big show Star Trek fan. I've yet to even, I can't think of a, a Star Trek game that I've actually enjoyed. That The spaceship game we played that was cooperative. I remember it was all right. It was Star Trek, was it not? Yes. Uh, but it was one of those things where the starter set wasn't really a good example of yes. much of anything. And, and since uh, Attack Wing, as you say, is kind of circling the drain of failure, not really inclined to get into this series in a, in a big way. Uh, Star Trek Away Missions is still getting some good response. I keep trying to get, again, Ship the Third to play it. We'll probably have something to say about it soon. It's It has potential. Uh, but I'm just surprised they're not theming anything around the new shows because I haven't seen Star Trek Discovery or Disco, as those in the know call it. Uh, but based on the kaleidoscopic disco ball of lasers that seems to be the entire thrust of the show, uh, it certainly seems well-suited to some kind of bang-bang-pew-pew game. Far more so than, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation, where the battle scenes consisted of two stationary miniatures shooting lines at each other. Well, luckily this time they said the ships are all going to be in scale, so we'll see. That might be interesting. So, Mythic Games, publishers of Darkest Dungeon as well as Six Colon Siege, have uh, come to their backers for more money. Again, they needed more money to publish Wave 1 of Darkest Dungeon, and as a, as a poor, benighted soul who pledged for that piece of dreck, I've now gotten an email for their begging for money again. Now, the thing that I find most fascinating about this is not just that they have the temerity to go to backers that have already paid for a, for a Kickstarter pledge, and who have already paid extra to get their initial pledge, on top of the shipping, of course. I'm not even including that. Not only do they say, here, give us another 150 bucks so you can have the things that you already paid for, and then we'll charge you more for shipping later. They don't even have the goal to be very apologetic about it. The email reads like this was something I'd signed up for just to be notified at a product launch, and like they're just telling me the sticker price of a thing that's coming out. It's really remarkable. It's it's your your fifty dollar monthly subscription fee for Mythic Game Pledge. Is up. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Or yeah, or they they were billing me for services already rendered or something. You know, no mention of the fact that it's late. It's wild. I'm not giving them any more money. I don't like the game. I don't want any more of the game. This is gonna be one of those things where, just like uh, s- some other 
crowdfunding campaigns that wanted, desperately wanted more money. They keep pinging. It's like, well, you haven't confirmed your pled manager yet. No, I'm not gonna. There was more Darkest Dungeon coming? Oh, yeah. There's tons of, of, of more content. Oh, yeah. good Lord. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want any of it, but <laughs> there we go. Well, I only got it because I knew Huey would want to try it. It's true. Huey got to try it. Yeah. I've done my due diligence. And we went back to it, too. We, we gave it we a gave second. It, we gave it twice as many tries as it deserved. It's true. Yes. So, Mythic Games, do not give them any money. I don't recommend it. They have no basis to be earning any trust or dollars from anyone. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. And now on to our feature game, which is City of the Great Machine. Hey, Walker, uh, on the topic of uh, of sponsors, I my, my friend James. James, your friend? My friend James. I gave him some of the Dr. Steve's caffeine malts. He really loves them. Nice. Yeah. Everyone calls him Jimmy of the Great Caffeine. So, City of the Great Machine was designed by Herman Tikhomirov, published by Crowd Games uh, this year. There are a number of expansions that we are not going to be talking about. Herman Tikhomirov has had a publication history stretching back a few years, but we haven't tried any of his previous stuff, and none of it seemed to have achieved very mainstream release. Uh, City of the Great Machine is a one-to-four-player, one-v-all kind of sort of hide-and-go-seek slash hidden movement but not really double-guessing type of game. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in City of the Great Machine? So as the Great Machine player, you're trying to slow down the rebels. You're trying to, you know, outthink them. It's the double-think going on. You're trying to raid areas that are going to be active. You're going to be moving around, repairing robots, trying to hinder their efficiency. You're completing, you're trying to complete your events so you can advance your great plan. Then as the rebels, you just sort of hang around. <laughs> you wait for the discontent, discontent track to inevitably advance to a point that it's impossible for a raid to fail. And bingo, bango, you won. <laughs> I think Walker is, is, is referring to uh, the bitterness that you can tell is because uh, Walker was the great machine the last time we played in... Uh... Didn't seem to think that the deck was stacked in his favor. So, it, <laughs> it was from all, that's the impression I got from all the games <laughs> of Great Machine that we played. Uh, I don't know. I think it, it, okay. I, I'm no I'm no expert on Great Machine strategy, but I think that playing to the Great Machine strengths are playing to the events. At the top of every round, an event comes up, and this isn't just like a boring sort of randomly dole out weird nonsense. At its best, what the events do is give some context and texture for where people might decide to go. Both the heroes, every player who's not the Great Machine controls one or more heroes, more on that later. It's a fixed three-hero game. And the Great Machine has three agents and a number of guards that they can go and, and maneuver to do various things. And the event might tell you something like, well... The Great Machine advances their victory condition if nobody does an action in this half of the board. Or the Great Machine gets to advance their victory condition if all of the Great Machine's agents are in the same place at the end of the round. Or things like that. And ideally what that's supposed to do is give some guidance for both players about where people might be going. Because if it were just a random set of doublethink... And some games do this very unsuccessfully, where it's like a number of like Bruno Fiduti games, like outthink your opponent. It's like, but there's no, like, if it's just rock, paper, scissors, I mean, I believe that there are some people who can, who can get to better than random chance, but quite frankly, it seems somewhat obscure to me. You might want to, you know, gamify it a little bit and give, give context and texture. And that's what the City of the Great Machine does with its, with its uh, events. Now, balancing as the Great Machine, trying to pursue those victory conditions against other exogenous things you might want to do is admittedly tricky and difficult to do because you've got a long road to hoe. I, I just wish those events were something that you could sort of work towards because they're all sure. exactly like you said. They're either something that the players can't stop you from doing, like they can't stop you from putting all the agents in the same spot. Yes. Or something that the great machine, there's no way for them, for him to stop the agents from, from doing the thing that will stop them from getting the point. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about nothing. I mean, so for example, in the context of situations where the, the Great Machine decides to put all of their agents in the same sector, what that means is that the heroes basically get to operate untrammeled in the other sectors. And you might figure that out as a hero looking at where the agents are and where they might decide to rendezvous, because movement in City of the Great Machine is very expensive for everybody. 
It's one of the key things you're going to be doing with your very limited currency, just getting from place to place. Because if you stay in the same place for too long, you're asking to get arrested. or And or you're asking for not being able to arrest anybody. In the case, I think your second example, though, is more compelling. There are a number of events that say something to the effect of spend this amount of currency to either prevent the advancement of the Victor Condition or the or to do the advancement of the Victor Condition, depending on whether the hero is a great machine, respectively. Those I find less interesting because it encourages you not to do something. It encourages you just to, you know, save up for, for throwing money at this problem. And it doesn't give particular guidance on where you're, you're apt to go. So I agree with you that some of them are more interesting than others. That is for sure. So let's just, I'll just give some quick context. So what we're talking about, people make sense of, maybe they have no idea. So what you're doing in the city of the great machine is there are three uh, figures for the great machine. They move around and try to think about where the agent, the rebels are going to be. And what the rebels are doing is that they're looking at all these civilians. They're littered all around the board and they're trying to figure out uh, the levels of those civilians. How angry are they? How likely are they to say, stick it to the man? And they get to shift. They, they have some actions that might let them shift around. And what you're trying to do is get uh, low ones. They, they're they numbered one through five. And then the their, their level slowly, you know, their, their way they can activate slowly goes up. Like level ones are all active. And then level twos, ones and twos will be all active. But anyway, you're trying to get them low. And then it's based on how many guards are there. And then you're trying to get these riots to happen you get three riots and the good guys win. And if the great machine advances their plan all the way to the end, they will win. You sound really excited about it, Walker. And then there's the setup. <laughs> Let's go right back to the beginning. There are nine boards that you're going to set up as districts in a particular order. So you got to make sure that's set up right. Well, there, there's you... a way to do it competitively, which I've tried. It doesn't really add a whole, whole heck of a lot. Oh, you can right. either do the specific scenario or you can do the thing where it's like, well, I place a board now. I place a board. That would be more painful. <laughs> and then you have to put 27 tokens on these boards. And then you have to set up 19 meeples on all of these boards. And then the players get to pick one of six different characters. So all the characters are sort of all interesting. They all have their own special ability. They all have a certain amount of money that they're allowed to carry. And then you're off to the races. Yeah, so might as well talk about this now. One of my key criticisms of City of the Great Machine is the fact that it is a fixed player count game. It is what we uh, sometimes used to call, following Brian Bankler, a fixed fun game. There's going to be the same amount of gameplay regardless of the number of uh, players you have. And if you have two players, it's fine. If you have four players, it's kind of okay. But playing a single hero isn't very fun, in my experience. And three players is not something we ever did, largely because I really don't like it where there's three characters doled out between two players. There's not really a good way to do it. We've tried it where one player controls two and the other controls one. That feels weird. There's the one where everyone has their own and the other one is shared. That feels weird, too. Uh, I, I don't think there's a good way around it. And consequently, I really think that City of the Great Machine is best as a two-player game, to be frank. Yeah, we played it too. It it zoomed along much quicker. And it was is, a lot more interesting. It's faster, and there's more for the heroes to do. I've played as one hero. I've played as three heroes. And let me tell you, three heroes is vastly more interesting. One of the reasons that it is better as a two-player game, because there, if you do get raided... If you happen to choose yep. the same location as, uh, because what happens is everyone, all of the good team, they choose a location card because you have one of every location, except one will randomly be pulled out of your deck at the beginning of the game. You'll know which one it is, but the great machine player will not. So everyone chooses where they're going to do their action, put it down on the table. Then the great machine does all of their actions. They say, okay, I'm going to raid here and raid here and move these robots around and so forth. Then the players reveal where they want to do their actions. And if they happen to go where there was a raid, they can be detained. And there are three possible things you can do to somebody who's been detained, two of which entail that hero forfeiting the remainder of their turn. Yeah, so in a, in a four-player game, that means they just do nothing. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> it is not amusing. And it doesn't feel so much like a... In my, my experience playing City of the Great Machine, it didn't feel like a tense game of cat and mouse. It felt like, am I going to avoid the frustrating end-of-turn bit? 
When I played as a great machine, I enjoyed catching people. It made me feel clever. It made me feel like I'd outsmarted people. But as the heroes, regardless of the number of heroes I play, it didn't feel like I'd been outsmarted. It didn't feel fun. It didn't feel like I was dancing on a knife edge. It's just like, well, am I going to get a turn today or not? And in the con- that's even in the context of playing three heroes, it was never great having to skip a turn, but it was more palatable at those t- circumstances. And then there's the number of actions you can do. You have this wide range of actions you can do everywhere, and oh, then boy. every different location has a different action you can do. I've had to teach City of the Great Machine a number of times, and the core element is fine. You know, the core structure, we both get currency, there's this event, everyone decides where they're going to go, the Great Machine goes, then the heroes go. That's fine, that's fine. Movement's simple, movement's relatively straightforward, The the in, most of the most interesting actions are relatively straightforward. And then there's the dizzying array of special location actions. Now, it's not that burdensome, quite frankly. I mean, compared to the amount of things that one can do, even in a medium-heavy worker placement game, it's, 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 it's not a huge deal. It's just, it's this thing where you're explaining the overall thrust of the game. It's like, and here's the list of things that can be done. And everyone's eyes start to glaze over. I don't know if it's just the way I'm explaining the game or what have you. There are reasonably good references in City of the Great Machine. But honestly, even people who've played it a couple times are like, wait, so I I, I, I get the cards over here and I, I play them on this side of the board. It's like, no, other way around. Or <laughs> it's a series of small potential options that just mount up and mount up and mount up until people, by and large, in my, resp- in my experience, regardless of the, the experience of the gamer, more or less shut down, blinker themselves and say, okay, I'm never going to move a district. I don't care. Or they just pick a whole range of things like, ah, can't be bothered. And then there's a sort of odd multiplier to how much, because everything you do costs money. And then it's going to cost, for the good players, it's going to cost a number, a certain amount of money based on how many guards are in the room. So there's always sort of a question, well, you know, is it when I enter the room or is it when I exit the room? It's like, okay, it's multiplied by the, how many civilians are in there. It's like, well, how many, oh, wait, no, it's not, it's not that. It's how many of the civilians have you looked at already? Or how many do we know? Then that's the, the number you're going to multiply the guards with. And mm. so it's this sort of weird all over the place. When you started the sentence, I was going to disagree with you, but by the time you ended it, I guess, I guess you've got a point. And again, as the game explainer, these are the things that I had to internalize before the, the, the game hit the table for the first time. But honestly, you know, but even even as I was explaining City of the Great Machine for the first time, about halfway through the list of actions, I was like, oh, wait. Because, and in, and it's frustrating because individually they're extremely simple, yes. simple, right? Like in the central square, the, the, the margin by which you either give bond to the Great Machine or increase discontent is the number of citizens minus the number of guards. And nobody remembers that. So you explain it for, you know, seven times till you're blue in the face. Like, wait, why is it two? It's two because it's four minus two. That's why it's two. But in the context of that plus how riots work. It's like, well, why is it six? It's like, well, because there are three guards and two unidentified citizens. Like, okay, fine. It adds up. So it's weird. It's not that it's an overly complicated game. It's just that all the complexity is loaded in the wrong areas, such that a number of people, yourself included, you you had a rough time internalizing the various costs and structures of City of the Great Machine, but you were not alone. And and it just seems to be this shuffling of tokens, and it's just I just I don't understand where the fun is. I, I can see where the fun would be for some people. It's like a little bit of like take that type thing. It's like hi, I outmaneuvered you, and yeah. and and I and I won. You but- you didn't. So I found it the I found City of the Great Machine the most fun as the Great Machine. Again, because I found the movement system there felt more engaging, and I had trade offs with respect to the event, because the events are usually catered towards the Great Machine, and so that gave me, uh, that pulled me in a couple of different directions, and I got to try to feel like I was outwitting the heroes, and the consequence of catching the heroes was good for me, as opposed to their motivations, which are just so, so they could get a turn much of the time. You didn't get any satisfaction as the Great Machine catching heroes? No, I did. I, oh, okay. I, I enjoyed playing the Great Machine much more than then just, you know, looking at it, it's like, yeah, that's a five. Yeah, that's a two. It's like, <laughs> it's like, okay, well, if we wait two more turns, those, that, that, that four will be active. And then, <laughs> and then there's no way he could stop a riot there. So, yep. yeah. It, and what uh, the shame is, since we both agree that the Great Machine is the most interesting role to play, the solo slash co-op version gets rid of the Great Machine. Oh, and great. Then, then you're just left playing well, the heroes. Well, we don't all get to play as, as different. Different aspects of the Great Machine, yeah. different subroutines. No, no, alas, oh. alas, it's 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 a bit of a shame. I mean, 
at their best, we we could hearken to the simple joys of of hidden movement games or cat cats the leader games or or hide and seek games. You know the joys, the thrill, the thrills of the narrow escape, the joys of being caught. You know something that harkens back to you know simpler times like like fishing, like fishies of the great ravine. Yes, it's very much like fishing. But alas, in the context of City of the Great Machine, a lot of that is one-sided and, and, and somewhat blunted, and that's unfortunate. There's a game called Not Alone, which was a science fiction game about uh, shipwrecked humans being hunted by an alien. And it worked much the same way. Humans decide where they're going to go secretly, and the alien tries to catch them. And similarly, there were gamified elements to give some texture and context as to where the humans would go. I vastly preferred that to City of the Great Machine. Much faster, much easier to explain, much more flexible in terms of player count. Everyone felt like they had things to do and a small box game to boot. I would yeah. I would, I would, recommend Not Alone over City of the Great Way Machine. Way more interesting double think. A lot shorter play time. Yeah. A lot more investing in the, in the situation. Yeah. Yes, I agree with all of those points. Yeah. Uh, this has a really cool dial. Yeah. <laughs> True. The dial is very. The boss. dial is interesting. Honestly, I find all the components really well done. Yeah. Uh, the the aesthetic is solidly steampunk, like unapologetic. Not not like steampunk Greek mythology or steampunk, but with uh, cybernetics or, or like or with a different take on cybernetics rather. But like really, just like monocles, gears, and top hats, steampunk, straightforward. I don't have any problem with that. I don't object to it at all. It's reasonably well executed. I like the fact that the cast is ethnically in, uh, uh, diverse and is a good representation of women. That's fine. All that part's great. Uh, the money's two-sided, which is kind of interesting. You know, one sure. side's for the great machine. The other side is for, for the... Bond versus trust. Yeah. There's, there's an, one of the, the major district actions is to actually manipulate the board. You get to, like, take a whole section of the board and it floats around to the other side. Conceptually cool and almost exactly. never happens because it's the <laughs> say, it's, 13th it, it, unique action it's, and it's, it's the sounds... restrictions are a list of things. And by that point, everyone's checked out of the, the rules explanation. Yeah, it sounds cool. I've seen it done really cool once. Uh, two two heroes had coordinated in terms of movement. The one earlier in turn order. Well, that's the other thing. The turn order is fixed, which is weird. Which means that if you're last in turn order, you never set anyone up. No, you always have to get everyone else to set to, to set you up, which doesn't feel as satisfying. It really narrows the range of those cool plays. But anyway, there was this cool play where player A moved the district somewhere, and then player B moved off of that district into some place that the city grip machine would never expect them to be. And then the great machine has some interesting moves with the with the guards because, like we said, the mul- guard management is crucial. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the 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 money that the rebels have to pay is based on how many guards, so you can sort of flood an area with guards, so their actions will cost more. But then that is making the actions in the other place because it's a fixed number of guards will yeah. make the actions in the other. So there is some stuff there, but it just takes so long, and it just there's no. There's no, like, hook that just makes it interesting yeah. and fun. Now, keep in mind, when we say that it takes so long, it's City of the Earth Machine is not all that long. You know, 75 to 90 minutes. Uh, 70, closer to 75 if you're playing with, with fewer players. It just, it feels like it drags anyway. I mean, it's not terrible. It's okay. It's just, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm more or less where Walker is, where I'm like, eh, it's not really... Because I think that's, that's, that's supposed to be part of the game. You're just trying to delay, you know, I mean, part of the, part of the game is trying to delay people and just... Yep. It's just it's there's sort a lot of, baked of in, right? there's a lot of incrementalism for both sides, and consequently those moments of clever evasion or clever action are few and far between. Most turns are just like, well, okay, I guess I take up the dial one. It's like, oh, great, I evaded the great machine. I get to take my turn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I do agree with you though. That as far as the great machine is concerned, the the guard management is interesting. It's one of those deceptive things. The guards are these small orange wooden pieces, and Oftentimes, they're vastly more consequential than the so-called agents, which are much larger plastic miniatures. And look way cooler. <laughs> and look way cooler, sure. And so thus, you, you might be deceived into thinking that the agents are where it's at. But actually, guard management is crucial and one of the key things uh, that can scupper the plans of, of the heroes. Anyway, so that, that's another interesting element that is unfortunately let down a little bit by some graphic design choices. When I think of regrettable graphic design, I also think of one of the most mediocre uh, strip clubs on the West Island of Montreal called Titties of the Great Lachine. Can we stop now? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I think this is gold. Uh, do you have a list of these puns? I've only got one left. Start with, okay, okay. I've only got one All left. Right. All right. Get it over with. 
<laughs> See, the problem is I had no way to work it in, <laughs> like at all, like not e- not even remotely. I was gonna try to say something about how you know there are, there are enough details. I should have I should have done this during hybris. It would have made more sense. Well, actually, the bit hadn't started yet, but enough details that really just like stick in your cross that you're not able to fully really enjoy it. You know, it's kind of like being a whale and 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 having a bad bit of seafood. It's like gritty of the great baleen. You spent no? all day doing these, didn't you? No, 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 not all day, not all day. <laughs> so, okay, I recommend Not Alone. I also really recommend Sniper Elite. As far as if you want the tension of hide and seek, Sniper Elite has that in spades, where everyone at the table is constantly engaged, trying to suss out where everyone is, those feelings of the narrow escape of the daring, bold uh, masterstroke of an action, the clever interception, all of those things that I kept feeling like City of the Great Machine was trying to get to and never did. Those are things that I really felt in Sniper Elite. Different kinds of games, but like st- every turn constantly. Yeah. 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 Well, not constantly. There were, there were turns. Well, that's just it. It manages tension really well. Yeah. During those turns where you're not like cornering or, or setting out a cordon, there's nonetheless the crucial decision of how to then spread out the net again. That's right. Uh, and or like, are we in the totally wrong area? It's like, right. You, you think you're like cloak boxing in this, and then you suddenly realize, wait, yeah, he could have, he could have got out. Okay, ping again. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Okay, okay. We might... <laughs> and here, and here's a key difference, right? And this is a structural difference that I think really d- displays some of the reasons why City of the Great Machine feels like comparatively a chore and Sniper Elite moves along in a great clip and feels so much more interactive. There is one hidden player in Sniper Elite. The other three players get to openly talk about what they're doing with each other. And so everyone at the table gets to be talking. Whereas in City of the Great Machine, the people who are coordinating with each other, they can't really talk about what they're doing without really tipping their hand to the Great Machine. You're allowed to say whatever you want, but everything you say has to be in presence of that player. What else are you going to say? It's like, I'm going to raise discontent? Well, then you know where you're going. Like, yeah. There's almost nothing you can say. I can see it being much more interesting if there was the open conversation like there is in Sniper League. Because, yeah. then, because then for those players that weren't quite sure what's going on or how a raid worked. Exactly. You could just sort of bring them through the motions and we're doing this. And if we do that, then the raid's going to work. Right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. So those, so in other words, clever play is, or, or the really clever plays, the really interesting horizon of plays pretty much only exist in the two player version. Yeah. But even two player, I'd rather play sniper lead. So yes. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our information at sowronggames.com slash contact. You can find a whole bunch of great stuff on sowronggames.com. We highly recommend it. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thank you very, very much for having decided to spend some time with us. We hope to see you again soon. Please do take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.